Art on a Podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Go With Yamo. Go With Yamo is an art exhibition app which helps you to find the exhibitions, art fairs and art events happening all around you. The app displays exhibitions based on your location. So the one closest to you will be at the top of the list. But if you're planning a trip, you can, of course, change your location to a different city. What makes the app really fun is that when you are at an exhibition, you can check in and earn points, which can then be used to redeem prizes from the in-app store, such as prints, exhibition tickets, books and more. Go With Yamo also create custom virtual exhibitions for galleries and artists. They recently created the virtual space for the Art on a Postcard winter auction, which is definitely worth checking out if you haven't done so already. You can find all of these on their website, along with some great blog content, including artist interviews, exhibition recommendations, quizzes and reviews. The art app is free to download from the App Store and the Google Play Store, so make sure you check it out and visit their website, www.gowithyamo.com. That's G-O-W-I-T-H-Y-A-M-O. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. And welcome to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. We're now on our final episode of this series that included a handful of our International Women's Day auction that is set to end this coming March the 11th, which of course is International Women's Day. International Women's Day started in 1911, but I can't remember it um, being as well celebrated Granted, I wasn't born in 1911, I was born in 1993. Um, but all throughout my life, I haven't seen it being being as um, widely celebrated as it has been in the last three or four years or so. I think with feminism being more ubiquitous and having its fourth or fifth or whatever wave that we're in now, um, we've really harnessed some powerful female energy each year, no doubt spurred on by the Me Too movement and such. And we're really proud to be contributing here on a postcard um, and that our auction ends on this celebratory day. And once the auction does close on March the 11th, I stress, 100% of the funds raised will go to our women's prison team, supporting some extremely vul- vulnerable and overlooked women in our society. Um, so really, there's no better way of celebrating this in- and International Women's Day than by buying a piece of artwork by a woman artist where the funds, 100% of which, go to a charity supporting vulnerable women. It's a win-win situation. Um, So today in the episode, um, as I say, the final episode of this series, I chat to printmaker Anne Desmet. Anne Desmet was born in Liverpool in 1964. She's taught wood engraving widely, including at the RA Schools, British Museum and Middlesex University. In 2011, Anne was elected a member of the Royal Academy of Arts and is the only the third wood engraver ever elected to the RA in its entire history. 
She's also a fellow of the Royal Society of Painter and Printmakers and the Society of Wood Engravers. In 2018, she was elected an Honorary Fellow of Worcester College, Oxford. She is the author of many books on the topic of printmaking and retrospectives and exhibitions of her work have toured the UK. Anne is a contributing artist to our current International Women's Day auction that ends on March the 11th. And um, her lots in the auction are 244 to 247 and can be found at artonapostcard.com. How are you doing? <laughs> Fine. Nice to, nice to meet you virtually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice to meet you as well. Um, how are you doing? How have you been finding it? What, the whole lockdown? Yeah. <laughs> uh, strange. Just, I mean, in, in terms of my life, not that much has changed because I work from home. I have a home studio. Uh, but it's just that constant sense of constantly feel you're waiting and on hold, you know. Mm. <laughs> so concentration is less good, but essentially you know, not that much is radically different, yeah, <laughs> even though everything yeah. is different. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, where you are looks really nice. I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky in this job that I get to have these Zoom calls with artists because I often get to peer into their, into oh, yes. their world behind oh, them. <laughs> so, so is this where you kind of, how do you like to keep your working space as you're there at home? Uh, well, it, it, it varies from being kind of very reasonably tidy and organised to being absolute chaos. <laughs> and it's about halfway between the two at the moment. Uh, if I'm working on art things, a lot of admin things tend to pile up and filing waits to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I'll blitz it all and tidy it up and, and the piles are all put away and then it all starts to accumulate again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny that you should mention filing. I think just the more I speak to artists through this podcast, the more I sort of learn that, um, you know, the ad- the admin side of being an artist is something that I think not a lot of people are aware of how many sort of emails and filing Mm. cabinets you need to have to keep everything together do you find that that suits you kind of naturally that kind of work or or is that something that you try to get done as quickly as possible oh admin certainly takes up a lot more of my time than actually making the work it's not it's it it's it's not wonderful but that is that is the case certainly I do find myself you know a lot of time on email and and sorting out things sometimes that's a displacement activity I think I've done more of that in in lockdown than I did previously because if your concentration is less good then it's easier to do some admin task that has got a beginning a middle and an end rather than embarking on some large new project that can be quite open-ended you know (laughs) yeah definitely definitely. Uh, that makes total sense Uh, it definitely makes sense um and so of course you are um a amongst many many things I'd say predominantly would you describe yourself as a printmaker um yeah and so how if you look back to when you first started printmaking Mm. how have you noticed your own progression have you have you marked the changes in your work when when did the kind of um you know going back to your say your very first prints that you made to now what would you say are the sort of key changes in your development as an artist 
Ooh, um, well, my earliest, it's really the subject matter, I guess, um, because when I went to art school, I made a lot of work that was um, essentially portraiture, but portraits with uh, rather a, a different approach in that they metamorphosed. So they tended to be sequential images and a fairly straight traditional portrait would gradually metamorphose a bit Escher-like into something else that seemed to me to say something about the sitter's personality or character. Um, and then I had a, a scholarship to Rome, a Rome scholarship in printmaking in 1989-90, and my work changed quite drastically then. Um, I got much more interested in, in making engravings to do with architecture, uh, but that were not so much to do with architecture as to do with history and time passing and the sense of metamorphosis from one generation to the next, which you can see really clearly in Rome through all the stages of architectural history. And I started making printed collages then, um, which I hadn't hadn't ever tried to do before. Um, and in fact, printed collages is essentially what my postcards are for <laughs> for art yeah. on a postcard so I started making postcards then and that was a very um, not postcards so I have collages then and that was a really liberating thing to start yeah mm. <laughs> yeah 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 so your your work does focus as you say a lot on architecture um is there a a city or a place or a type of building that you think would sort of capture you more than others? Is there is there a place that draws you in? Uh, well, probably it is Rome, although I've travelled extensively in, in Italy since then. But I think there's certain types of building, particularly buildings built in the round, like the Colosseum or the Pantheon or London's Olympic Stadium that sort of draw me in. There's something about that very complete O shape <laughs> that somehow feels very satisfying. Um, there's something I can't really explain quite why that the abstract shape of it is very satisfying, but also a sense of the the holisticness of a building mm. in the round. <laughs> if you don't mm. think too hard about what the Colosseum used to be for <laughs> as a as a tourist attraction and and an incredibly impressive building, it it it's quite uplifting, but you have to not think about uh, its rather terrible past. It used to be used for battles of the gladiators in ancient Rome and or Christians being fed to the lions for entertainment of spectators. So it's you know an enormous theatre with lots of seating around a central ring. And in that central ring, there would be armed combat of one sort or another, sometimes with animals, sometimes soldiers against unarmed people who were essentially there to be put to death. I mean, terrible history throughout throughout Rome, um, throughout the history of the Roman Empire. But what's left is this extraordinarily, extraordinarily well-preserved ruin. And architecturally, the shape of it is just fascinating. And it's a shape and a form that's repeated in, in equivalent theatres uh, all over the world. And if you look at, um, at, say, the Olympic Stadium in London, it takes the form of the ancient Colosseum in Rome, as do as does the Olympic Stadium in in Beijing, and pretty much every Olympic stadium. They they all have that. They're they're all based on that essential uh, architectural form and idea that is from ancient Rome and probably 
there are earlier forms of that that you know maybe in ancient Greece that predate that <laughs> yeah I mean you can draw links definitely also to sort of football stadiums and baseball stadiums and just anywhere where there's a sense of a sort of collective audience sort of witnessing a any kind of spectator sport it's also I suppose when you talk about sort of fighting animals and things it does make me think a little bit of reality television <laughs> as well <laughs> maybe now our arena is just sort of the boxes in our living room um, so in 2011 um, you were elected as a royal academician um, mm -hmm. and you are the uh, only the third wood engraver ever elected by the Royal Academy, which is an amazing achievement. But also, why do you think that um, wood engravers or printmakers have not been included so much in the selection by the Royal Academy? <laughs> um, I, that's a, a historical thing that I think is to do with the status of printmaking within the overall scheme of fine art. And for generations, printmaking tended to be seen as a purely reproductive medium. So, you know, for reproducing pre-existing paintings or drawings of somebody. Um, and the earliest printmakers who were elected to the Royal Academy were those who were, were making reproductions in etching or mezzotint or whatever of, say, Sir Joshua Reynolds' paintings. And so they were working in collaboration with some of those painters of the 1700s, the earliest academicians, um, and helping them build their fortunes, essentially. But they weren't really considered as artists in their own right. They were considered incredibly skilled copyists. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there have been historically some absolutely fabulous artists such as Dürer or Rembrandt uh, or Goya who use printmaking as an independent means of expression or, or Piranesi in Italy. You know, there have been quite a few of them, but for, I guess, the, the, the main function of printmaking for many centuries was, was a reproductive one uh, and quite commercial in certain ways. So it's taken a while for the status of printmaking to be seen as something that um, artists can use, like they can use any technique to make original work. Um, but the Royal Academy was set up with the, with a basis of um, the, the fine arts, which were originally considered to be painting, sculpture and, and architecture in the 1700s in Britain and, and have only later come to take on printmakers so there are historically fewer of us right yeah, <laughs> remains yeah. the case yes mm. yeah and so how how do you think that um of the the three of you that, that have been selected in history um how do you how did you sort of manage to um as you say there was that that perceived threshold or barrier between the two art forms how mm. do you think you managed to to um succeed comfortably in both arenas or areas <laughs> do you know i'm not entirely sure i can really answer that question to be to be elected to the royal academy the the other royal Academ academicians get together and discuss certain candidates who've been put forward by uh, amongst themselves <laughs> and i know since being a member and being part of those discussions about other artists, that there's a mixture of factors that come into play. And part of it is, is 
a pure and simple gut response to the, the that artist's work and what you think about that artist's work. But there is also discussions about the artist's professional status, um, their success as an artist, what, what kind of variety of projects they've been involved in, how many, or not so much how many, but do they have a long established track record of solo exhibitions and this, this kind of thing. All those things come into play. Um, and I think perhaps in some ways it's almost harder for printmakers now than it may have been um well say 50 years or 60 years ago because i think in in art now there's a, a a large distinction between artists who are incredibly successful and their works are selling for millions of pounds ago you know um and and attract enormously high prices at auction and then there's a sort of another level of artists whose works sell for more modest much more modest sums and of course printmakers tend to be definitely in the, in the in the lower category because by the nature of the beast you're making a multiple of things so you wouldn't be expecting one of your prints to sell for a figure with an awful lot of noughts on the end of it because it's one of an edition of say 50 mm. <laughs> uh, so so nowadays those distinctions seem to be getting wider so it's actually harder now, I think, for printmakers to be seen as as very successful artists because the British press particularly tends to to go on um, the value per work of your works. Right. <laughs> Does yeah. that make sense? Absolutely. That makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a really great insight into the sort of nuts and bolts of um, art making an art production and, and its perception mm. in the media I think that's really mm. really interesting and in, um, in, in say the 1930s you would have had artists like well Gertrude Hermes for one who was the second wood engraver elected as a royal academician um, and and so she her heyday was in the 1920s 30s she was a working artist in, until she had a stroke, I think, in the 1960s. Um, but there was a point that she was invited to be uh, Britain's one of Britain's representatives at the Venice Biennale. Um, and unfortunately, for family reasons, actually, she wasn't able to take that up. But other printmakers did. And I can't I can't envisage, um, you know, in, in the time I've been working as an artist, I have never seen a, a traditional printmaker be taken as Britain's representative at the Venice Biennale because printmaking perhaps it has less status now in certain ways for the reasons I've just explained than it did you know in the 1930s interesting <laughs> yeah it's really interesting I don't know if you saw this is a complete kind of caveat but I just watched it quite recently I don't know if you saw the um Portrait Artist of the Year award. It was a thing on Sky Arts, and they had that. I've seen bits of it. Mm. Someone was doing the portraits um, using wood etchings, I think, or was it Lino? Um, one or the other, anyway. And just the pro watching, witnessing the process in comparison to the painters, you know, that you can you can do one sitting and make a portrait of someone sitting in front of you as a, as a engraver, but you will never know until it comes to the actual act of printing it, whether you've been successful or not. You can't sit and rework with oil paint in that way. Mm. Um, 
so for me you know watching that <laughs> tiny little snippet into the sort of um complications of of printmaking there's no doubt that it's um it's not only its own craftsmanship but it's it's to have that eye and to have that foresight into what you're doing is just an incredible um sort of skill um and talent um do, how do you find that process is it a sort of love hate thing or are you always sort of like kind of um satisfied and happy with the outcomes <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit of a love hate thing uh because certainly for what i do I'm, mostly i make wood engravings although i also make some lithographs um wood engravings lino cuts and lithographs and certainly for the wood engravings and the lino cuts you have to be so decisive because every mark you engrave on that block you are stuck with it <laughs> so if you if you make a mark you didn't like you have to adapt the composition so that it looks correct even if it wasn't what you'd initially planned um and you can't make too many mistakes of that sort because otherwise you'd end up with you know you'd cut the block all away there'd be sort of nothing left uh so it means that i spend more time contemplating the block and and a bit less time sort of going at it you can't do I well I can't I, I see some wood engravers who do just seem to be able to cut away <laughs> um without stopping to pause too much and I'm constantly thinking well if I cut more there I'm going to be cutting all the dark areas away so so is that enough and it's very easy to over overwork it I think to overwork mm. things so it means that I'm rather slow, and that's where it becomes a love-hate relationship. That it, 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 you, you're constantly, your head is constantly teeming with more ideas than you could actually make because you can't carry them out that quickly because you're very likely to go wrong. Mm. And but then collage is a, is the outlet for me for that. So I can make a wood engraving quite slowly, but I can also cut up and tear up and reconfigure lots of bits of my engravings into one-off collages that's much more fun and spontaneous and you can change your mind and <laughs> not feel sort of so intensely sucked into it in a way mm, mm. <laughs> I find that really interesting just how sort of like the process of of using one medium can sort of be such that it requires another process to like offset any kind of energy that you might have mm -hmm. pent up on the other yeah I can relate to that because you know even in my own practice so I do a lot of writing and especially playwriting especially at the minute um while theatres are completely closed huh? it's almost I just have all this energy and I just don't I can't take anything into R&D I can't take anything into um, rehearsals or anything like that so I find that I've started doing things that are really much more immediate like they might be with clay or they might be with paint or whatever it's like god yeah you, you do if I think if you're an artist you have these kinds of uh, kind of more like sprints you know like mm -hmm. like an athlete you might sprint sometimes and that might be your collages and then sometimes it's nice to go on a long walk with an engraving yeah. <laughs> yes. um so last year you curated um seen through wood um which was a century of wood engraving at the ashmolean museum celebrating the art of wood engraving over the last hundred years what was it like curating an exhibition in 2020 <laughs> Gosh, well, most of the work for it, um, most of the actual curating had happened earlier than that between kind of while well, I was working on it from 
about 2016, I, I began to be making regular visits to the Ashmolean and trawling through all of their wood engraving holdings and then coming up with a long list of six or 700 works and whittling that down to a much shorter list of, of works from that collection and from various private collections that ended up in the show. So, and then not so long before the, the lockdown, I was um, working on editing the catalogue. I'd had to write the catalogue about a year in advance, but then the publication for that uh, is quite a slow process. Uh, so I guess it was all systems go of finalising things and exhibition design plans and so on. Um, in the spring of last year, because it was scheduled to open on March the 27th. Um, and of course, that didn't happen, <laughs> obviously. Uh, and it all was put on hold and finally did open on in, in August uh, until November. And then hopefully it will tour. Uh, so it, it was a bit of a strange experience, really, last year, um, made <laughs> considerably sadder for me because unfortunately my, my mother died in March last year so all of the the deadlines for the exhibition all coincided with with my mum becoming very ill and dying um, and so some of that time is is, is rather a blur of things that absolutely were not going right but losing my mum was completely the the worst of that absolutely um, I'm sure I'm so sorry to hear that <laughs> it, yeah sounds like a really testing year um but having looked into the exhibition and seeing sort of you know um the how exciting it is um a, as a kind of uh, collection of some wonderful wood engravings I'm sure it, you know um there is some positives in, in oh, the there, are, there are certainly I mean I, I was I felt incredibly relieved that the the catalogue was actually published in in the catalogue was published just before the lockdown happened um and you know who knows it, it may be that the Ashmolean would have still run the show um but I I I sort of feel that the fact that they had already invested in the catalogue meant that they didn't want to cancel it. So they, they postponed it rather than cancelled it, which must have been quite difficult because, you know, moving my exhibition, that exhibition to a different slot would certainly have meant cancelling something else that should have been in the next slot, you know. Yeah. Um, and it opened, but of course it didn't have a private view and the numbers of visitors that came were the maximum that could come but that was a lot less than would have been allowed into the building in <laughs> in normal circumstances you know so so I'm very conscious that a lot fewer people have seen it than than would than would have been the case were it yeah. not for the pandemic yeah. but it is going to tour I hope exactly, for another yeah. couple of years it's had you know the first venue of this year was cancelled of course <laughs> uh, but hopefully it, it will there will be other venues in the next Absolutely. few years Okay. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I'm sure it will go on to, you know, make waves. Um, so it, that the exhibition was looking at 100 years in wood engraving. Mm. What changes do you see occurring in, in the history of wood engraving? So are there the same changes that occur in painting, for instance? Are they relevant in um, wood engraving? Are there different movements, um, for instance? Mm, that's interesting. Well, curiously, the 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 what you would describe as perhaps the modernist movement in wood engraving uh, is all happening in the 1920s and 30s. And in some ways, the more contemporary wood engravings, by no means all, but but 
quite a lot. And a lot of those are the ones that I haven't actually included in the exhibition have become perhaps a little more conservative, uh, which is a bit surprising. So historically, the founder of, of um, or the, 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 the person credit, credited as being the inventor of wood engraving really um, was a man called Thomas Buick in Newcastle in the, in the mid to late 1700s. And he specialized in rural subjects, you know, images of village life and birds and uh, yeah, country scenes really. Um, and a lot of wood engravers in the last 30, 40 years have rather followed in that Buick tradition, wood engravers in Britain, uh, it still remains a very strong presence. And some of those are, are wonderful prints, but some of them also, for me, feel as though they're a bit, you know, dislocated from any reality that I know. But I'm a bit of a city girl. You know? <laughs> so five bar gates and sheep, it's pretty, but it it, it doesn't move me as, as contemporary art in, in a way. Um, so it's it's quite odd. The, the the strongest sense of a modernist movement was the 1920s and 30s within wood engraving, and then after that there are less uh, or fewer movements, but striking, startling individuals within it, which makes it interesting. So you, you you're then picking out just particular different individuals who did something extraordinary, mm. rather than having a sort of sense of a a trajectory, a movement as a whole, in the way that you get, you know, with with paintings, paintings over the decades, you mm. can see more consistent movements and styles within painting. Yeah, <laughs> that's super interesting, and I'd be, I'm so excited to get a chance to see it um, when I finally do, um, to 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 kind of um, kind of understand, I guess, better the the history and the art of um, wood engraving. Um, and and we are so um, grateful and thankful for your um, kind and generous donations. This is certainly not the first time that you've um, generously donated to our charity auction. Um, this year, you have some cards in the International Women's Day auction, raising some much needed funds for our women's prison team. Um, would you be able to explain to listeners and sort of describe and tell us the process and the thoughts behind this year's additions to um, the auction? Okay, well, uh, so I've submitted four postcards, and one of them is a, a collage from a wood engraving that I'd made of the very beautiful old spiral staircase, uh, and it's actually from uh, the Gainsborough's House Museum, the source of that staircase. Um, and I'm interested in, in old staircases and I'm interested in light. So this combination of that you're looking up into a skylight uh, as, as the, the, the balustrade circle round, there's something I think very hopeful about that, the sort of a stairway climbing up towards the light. Uh, so I, I like the symbolism of, <laughs> uh, that, that, that comes about through that kind of a, a scene. Um, so actually that wood engraving started its life also as a charity, uh, a, a charitable project to because uh, some prints I made of that staircase were sold to raise money for Gainsborough's House Museum to for redevelopment. So, so it's it's having continuous continued use as a, as a, a work to do with the charity. Uh, so that's that one. And the other three cards are all uh, collages from um, lithographs that I made 
which are all um, to do with the redevelopment project at the Royal Academy. Um, in 2018, the Royal Academy opened a, a much bigger expanded campus into the building behind it. And it had been a rather epic building project for a couple of years before that to, to see this new site um, in completion. And one of the things that was done was the creation of a, a brand new, wonderful lecture theatre in the round um, and also it had for a while there was scaffolding on on the roof which I think was the largest scaffolding over any roof in in London for decades possibly ever because it's a big expanse so I had the chance to go up onto the roof and and have a look at all of that and you could see sculptures that are ordinarily on the roof but you'd be eye to eye with them because you'd climb the scaffolding to to see them um, so th there are three images there, all to do with that building project. And uh, for me, I think there's something quite hopeful about a building site because you don't know quite what it's going to sort of metamorphose into, how it's going, how the space is going to be reanimated. So there's an excitement there, a sense of hope and of possibility that I find interesting. So mm. that was what those three works were about. Lovely. It's so great to hear kind of your your process and thoughts behind the artworks because they are four tremendous pieces that we're very lucky to include in this year's upcoming International Women's Day auction. Um, and all the pieces are available to view, of course, at www.artandapostcard.com. Um, and thank you so, so much for giving up some time to chat with me today. It's been really interesting um, and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Hope the auction is a huge success. Yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Anne. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Art on a Podcast. To find out more about anything in today's episode, go to artonapostcard.com and be sure to follow us on all our social channels at Art on a Postcard. Goodbye.